The ground has shifted under the Chinese feet when it comes to their perception by both the political classes and the average American. Why? What could possibly have changed? Was it that China has become so much more bellicose towards Taiwan by its military spending, by its repression via AI of almost everyone, by its seizure of Hong Kong? Or did Americans wake up and realize China was not going to become a shining hill of democratic values, they were not going to stop the theft of Americans' intellectual property, and they were not going to stop dumping hundreds of billions of dollars of goods on the American market? Or is it perhaps that they have openly declared that this century is theirs? James, we need to know what you're thinking. Tell us what's on your mind. Oh, thank you, Jonathan. It's so great to be with you and to talk about this because it has been such a dramatic change. And in some ways you wonder, you know, whether which came first, the cart or the horse. You see this polling that's being done by Pew and these other, by Gallup. And around 2018 is where they really started seeing this dramatic shift in the American populace's opinion about China, the, you know, this negative opinion of China kind of taking off. So uh, I guess you would say that perhaps the public opinion lagged some of the uh, academic and political elites who were, you know, were starting to wake up to this. Uh, so, uh, but I, you know, as I was pondering this, I do think that we um, first have to recognize that there was always this ambivalence. Uh, when Congress gave China its normal, permanent normal trade relations in 2000, they were ambivalent about it then. And they actually mm. included in the bill the establishment of, of two commissions. One is the uh, Congressional Executive Commission on China, and its mandate is to uh, monitor and, and issue an annual report on human rights and the development of rule of law in China. So even in 2000, as we you know, embarked on this road, Congress was having second thoughts. And the, the other one that they established has kind of a long name, but it's the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission. And their mandate was to monitor the national security implications of this bilateral trade agreement. So Congress recognized right in the beginning uh, that you know uh, China was certainly not at the time a good actor. You know they were they were hoping it was going to become one. Wow. Okay. So it wasn't a complete surprise, but it was in the background. Let's say it was certainly was in the political background of of the certainly of the American business class, which dominates our society. Yes, I mean, and that was the other trend or the other influence that was at work here <clears throat> was that. Um, you know, the, the American multinationals were just champing at the bit to get into China, yeah. uh, to get into that $1.4 billion uh, person market, but also, you know, to establish their uh, manufacturing there for products yeah. they, they wanted to sell in the United States. But, you know, going back to Congress, I, I, I noticed um, during the debate uh, on this bill that established the, the permanent uh, relations um, that Mitch McConnell uh, somebody had a look. There's 11 senators who are in office now and who uh, voted in favor of uh, permanent trade relations back then. And uh, Mitch McConnell was saying that, uh, that, that you know, what we were really uh, hoping would happen was that we would be, uh, that we would be exporting not only American products, and this is a quote, 
yeah. but perhaps more importantly, American ideas and ideals. And you know, looking at that now, it was so hopelessly naive, but uh, that was obviously the hope. And then, of course, as you said, on the commercial side, the companies, uh, you know, as soon as this permanent trade relations were established, there was a rush of companies into You're China to, to, yeah. to set up their, their operations. That's that's when Walmart started, if I'm not mistaken, the China price, where they basically told every single manufacturer supplier that uh, the price where they could get for the hair dryer or the garden hose or any and every single thing made in China now that dominates 98% of Walmart's sales established the quote China price. And that was when if you didn't sell it at that price, you, you could just go out of business. Is that correct? Yes. And so in, in effect, what they did was they drove their brands to China because yeah. that was the only way they could meet that price. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, there was that ambivalence there. But then um, I would suggest really that uh, we have to look at the year 2012 to see when the waking up really started occurring. Hmm. Because when, when Xi Jinping came in, we did see a, a remarkable change in, in Chinese behavior. Yes. Yeah. So what might have been being done, you know, sub rosa before then was uh, first brought out into the open. You because, know, <clears throat> go ahead. What I'd like to ask you about is how did the very intellectual political class like the Cato Institute and other free trade quote organizations hijack the intellectual debate when China was granted permanent trade status? Who hired them to start talking about how Americans would save all this money and, you know, you could buy a cheap TV and this was just fantastic for America and, you know, all of a sudden inflation would go down because the price of everything would plummet, it would all made in China. How did that 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 sort of very clever, high-level intellectual justification coming out of that free trade intellectual group um, get funded and, and influenced? Well, I, I don't know the whole story, but I, I can tell you that in my research, I covered the fact that uh, the Koch brothers were really behind yes. a lot of that. Right. And they actually uh, funded uh, an institute at, I believe it's at George Mason University, where uh, they just promoted... Uh, so-called research, you know, that would publish a, a lot of these kinds of things. And then they did, that wasn't the only one, you know, they, they had this this spider web of, of institutes that, and, and policy, you know, think tanks and that where they were uh, just promoting these ideas. So that's one source I can assure you was there. And I, I have to wonder sometimes where the Peterson Institute gets its funding, uh, maybe from other places, um, I think that there were a lot of what we might call liberal thinkers uh, uh, who bought into all of this, you know, this march of history and that they that, were. Uh, they were. That, <clears throat> so I think you were kind of getting it from from both political directions, although I think in the case of the Koch brothers, they they were they did have some free free market ideals. But I think that a, a lot of it was really financially driven on, on their part. I see. Well, there is no question that the, that both the left and the right thought this was a good idea for various and different reasons. You know, certainly the left felt that the coastal elites would benefit from this, from all these goods flowing in and 
potentially the things we could sell to China. And um, that would free a lot of people to do other things than work in factories. I don't think they had a really any understanding of what the American heartland really did for a living. You know, they imagined that everybody, you know, was going to evolve into, you know, something else more more profound than just assembling something at a plant in Indianapolis. Of course, that turned out not to be true. But, you know, at the time, it seemed like a good idea. Okay, so we're, let's go back to where you were saying in 2012, something shifted. Tell us about that. Well, uh, Xi Jinping came in, uh, you know, we had a, a succession of weak leaders. So when, when uh, he came in, he represented really the old guard, you might say. He was a princeling. His father had been involved in, in with uh, Mao right in the beginning. And and so uh, we really saw a new era beginning uh, when, when he came in. And he first, he took on the this idea that you mentioned of the, the new Chinese century. Yeah. Because they had had the century of humiliation. And so he brought in what he was calling the great the great rejuvenation where China would not just become a peer, but would again become the center of the world uh, with other nations paying tribute to them. So that was his grand design. And then under the Communist Party system, they were able to, every five years, have a new plan. They adopted China 2025, in which they said, we're going to be the technology leader of, of the world. So he had this grand design that he brought in, and then that grand design wasn't just raising China up economically, but it was uh, claiming territory and, and, and claiming influence around the world. They wanted to have both hard and soft power worldwide, Africa, South America, there, there were no limits. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wrote a piece a long time ago, I don't know, many, many, many years ago, about the Boxer Rebellion. And it basically stated that uh, I think America is now going through what the Chinese went through in the turn of the century, the previous century, with the Boxer Rebellion. When they woke up one day and they realized that the colonial powers, if I'm not mistaken, had corrupted their entire country, had destroyed their manufacturing base with with the imported goods, had made them all addicted to opium, forced that on them, and just basically destroyed Chinese society, that the British, the Americans, and all the other uh, people who had been granted concessions in the Chinese coast had had wrecked China. And there was a rebellion against that. And it ended up, you know, with the Charleston Heston movie, 55 Days at Peking. But they really tried to throw out the, the Americans and the colonialists that were wrecking China. They ultimately were defeated and even more humiliated by the British and everybody afterwards made to pay reparations, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it dawned on me that we may be going through our own sort of boxer rebellion in America, where we've woken up to the fact that you know they're just dumping billion, hundreds of billions of dollars of goods. They've destroyed our, our labor market. They've destroyed our heartland. The brilliant book, by Agnes Deaton and Ann Case about the opioid addiction in America mm. uh, is 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 really profound, scientifically tracing um, the amount of factory closures and the amount of unemployment in in the industrial parts of America to suicide, alcoholism, and opiate and opioid mm. addiction. It's like we've woken up to this to this fact now, and we're trying to like reclaim our own country. Uh, certainly, that's you know been the agenda of, of politicians we're going to discuss in the next episode. 
So why did this occur all of a sudden? Was it just she coming in and, and making you know these verbose statements? Or was it like we finally realized that the bill of goods we were sold isn't exactly what we were told they were going to contain? Well, I think it was it was happening by degrees. Yes. Uh, so uh, so when C, C came in, uh, a couple of things stand out. Uh, one was that uh, just a year or so later, they started creating islands in the South China Sea and militarizing them. And, uh, you know, Obama administration said something about it, but really, you know, didn't do anything in response. And then I remember uh, in 2014, uh, the Obama Justice Department uh, indicted five Chinese generals for engaging in industrial espionage. And, you know, and, and Obama met with, with C and said, you know, we want you to stop this intellectual property uh, theft. And they said they would. And of course, they didn't. They doubled, so, they doubled down on it, in fact. Yeah, they did. And of course, Trump called them on it later with the Section 301 tariffs. So uh, we saw these you know, these things kind of unfolding. So you had that. And then we had the uh, Hong Kong repression in, in 2019. It became, you know, big public awareness of, of their that of their human rights, their, their disdain for democracy and human rights. That, oh, no, no, we can't, you know, you, Hong Kong people want democracy. We're not going to let that happen. So uh, it's been a succession of events, I think, that uh, have brought this to public consciousness, the growing uh, deficit, deficit, as as you mentioned, uh, you know, and the and the the American pe- people, the workers that you just described in the in the Midwest, they were experiencing this firsthand. So first of all, they were losing their jobs, and so yeah. they knew that all these theories were just theories, and that <laughs> reality was what they saw happening to their town when the factory closed because it had and, and all the all the machines were shipped to China. The book, so, by the way, the book, by the way, I was referencing is, is so brilliant. I, I really suggest everybody read it. It's called Deaths of Despair. Yes. Uh, by Anne Case and Agnes Beaton. I think it's Yale or Princeton University Princeton. Press. Is it Princeton? Yes, indeed. It's Princeton. They are both professors. They're husband and wife team yeah. professors at Princeton. Deaton is actually a Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> um, and I've, I've seen Anne Case uh, interviewed about this, but the book is an expansion of a, of a series of papers they published on the right. results of their research. And the, the remarkable thing, if, if our listeners could picture a graph of the, um, the U.S. trade in goods deficit with China, just kind of limping along. And then in 2001, it takes a dramatic, uh, it just takes off. It's like going at a 45-degree angle toward the upper right end of the graph. I think they call that parabolic. Yeah, but it's like this, all of a sudden, there's just this straight yeah. line. It just takes off. And so, but the, the remarkable thing is, when you look at Anne Case and Jan, uh, the, the Case and Deaton graph, it's exactly the same curve. It limps along until 2001, and then these deaths of despair among middle-aged white Americans takes off at exactly the same rate as our trade deficit with China. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's enough said. It's like, any questions, sir? No, I know. As to, uh, not only did they take all the jobs, but the poor people left behind ended up just sitting around at the bars drinking themselves to death. I know, or taking opioids. Exactly. So I'm just, uh, that is fascinating, and it's a brilliant connection I had not made. But this, this is... You can think of this as our Boxer Rebellion because 
uh, you know, the Western powers, the Chinese didn't want to buy anything from the West. Right. They had everything they wanted, you know, whereas, whereas the West wanted their silk and, and their porcelain and you know, all these Yeah, so, uh, okay, they don't want to buy anything from us. We'll sell them opium. <laughs> so now, the, you know, the Chinese are selling us fentanyl. Yes, yes. Isn't and that selling it to the people whose jobs they destroyed. Yes, isn't that amazing? It really is. And the, 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 there's a wake-up call, just like they had in, 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 I think it's 1900, was the Boxer Rebellion. It had gone on for a while. It had come, come and gone. Yeah. It's really but, Go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't want to sound a note of pessimism here, but... You can. Uh, the, <laughs> you know, the people who experienced this, experienced it enough to elect uh, Donald Trump, they experienced it enough, you know, the, to, to change their, their, their voting patterns. But when you look at polling, the American people seem to be more concerned about China rising as a rival to the United States and the security and the human rights dimension seem to be what's mostly on people's minds. And regrettably, that when, pe when they pull them about trade, they haven't woken up to the idea that buying all this stuff from China is is really bad. You know, I think that we oh. still have a ways to go for the American people to understand that. That's really interesting. One of the reasons for that would be the probably the greatest misnomer of two words I've ever heard in the 20th century are the words free trade. <laughs> I, I, the, the, every time I hear that, I I, I become intellectually apoplectic. <laughs> I, yes. it, 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 I've heard it a hundred thousand times. I've read it a hundred thousand times in, in magazines and newspapers, websites, free trade, free trade, free trade. As if like, if you don't believe in free trade, you're a ludite or you're intellectually inferior or you're self-destructive, all the above. And I, I've never understood how, how a, a society like America could swallow whole the lie that there was ever any free trade. I mean, from day one, you couldn't trade with China without a domestic partner, without transferring your technology, without a million different regulations and restrictions and rules on what you could or couldn't do in China. You just can't go into China like you can go into you know, any part of the United States and open up 300 stores or sell something or do something. You need to have a partner that, that allowed you to do it. There was no free trade. There never was any free trade. It was yeah, all- there wasn't, there wasn't even any free trade with Japan. Same right. thing. That's you know, try to open an auto dealership in Japan. <laughs> that is exact. Right. There was so, never yeah, any right. It's it's fascinating what you know that that got sold to people uh, and and academics you know who really believed uh, you know they believed that Milton Friedman you know the the, the market on the unfettered theoretical thing called the market was going to deliver the good, whatever we define as the good. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, writing my book, there's only two ways to think about that. One is that there is a good that we might all agree on and the market will deliver it. But worse is they really are positing that whatever the market delivers is the good. Yeah. Those are, those are both very scary things. So you take that idea the Milton Friedman School of Economics and then apply it internationally, and you get this thing that is, you know, this supposed free trade. But as you say, none of our trading partners are are trading freely. No, they're all mercantilists in in, 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 the, in the extreme. You know, there was one other. Let me say, there was one Please. other country. There was one other country who bought into this, and it was England. 
and it did not turn out very well for them. <laughs> right. They're the, they're the other big chump in the world. And, and I, I have a graph in my book of the, uh, the, the deficit or surplus in trading goods. Then over at the left, in the far left, China has the big surplus followed by Germany. They're both very good mercantilists. Yep. And over at the far right, the biggest deficit, of course, is the world's biggest chump, the United States, right. followed by England. You know, let, let's let's get specific for a second. You know, some of this conversation is a bit abstract. Let's talk about solar panels, because mm. this is right now up for discussion and regulatory uh, approvals uh, at, at, the, at the federal level, if I'm not mistaken, regarding mm -hmm. Chinese so, solar panels. Mm -hmm. My understanding of the story is that, you know, we used to have a very good share of the solar panel market. We were leaders in solar technology. We had manufacturing capabilities and technology, cap technological capabilities in the solar area. And, you know, we had a certain share of the solar market. I don't know what it was, but it was pretty high. The Chinese decided that that was going to be something they were going to dominate. So my understanding is they started dumping solar panels and solar so solar cells on the United States at a level that put everybody out of business. It's a typical Chinese move. Let's underprice this to destroy the, the Americans' ability to manufacture, or in, in fact, anybody's ability. They, they destroyed the Spanish ability. They destroyed the, the German ability. It wasn't just mm -hmm. us. So... You can now buy Chinese solar panels and uh, for a fraction of what the what, what the price delivered to America is, but now it turns out that we, you know, because of the tariffs, our solar panels are somewhat competitive again, and there's a talk of re rebuilding solar factories and making putting all all the people back to work that that lost their jobs at these high skill highly skilled, good wage paying solar plants. Mm -hmm. um, but the solar industry and the installers are screaming and yelling, oh, no, we're going to have to pay all this much more for these solar panels and we should be able to buy them for nothing from China. And, you know, it's going to inhibit our ability to install solar panels and et cetera, et cetera. So the Chinese, if I'm not mistaken, have put us into a bind where half the half the country wants to see cheaper solar panels from China and the other half would like their jobs back. It's pretty, pretty clever, isn't it? Oh, it's so clever, and it's classic. This is you know, exactly what they do in industry after industry. Uh, they they did it in the pharmaceutical industry, same yeah. thing. So, uh, and then w but when you look a little deeper, and of course, as you said, they they bring the their power to bear uh, in order to be able to dump these things on the U.S. market. So you know, so cheaply. Uh, but people don't stop and think. I heard just heard yesterday that uh, because the Chinese are powering, uh, the, the, they get the power in their solar plants from coal-fired yeah. power plants, that it, it would take uh, nine years of use of one of their solar panels before you got to carbon neutral for all the, the carbon you created in creating that solar panel. <laughs> you just don't know what, whether to laugh or cry, you know. It's uh, but But back to the... To this, uh, as you said, this this clever pitting one part of our economy to the other, you know. It's, so the question is: Are we going to make anything, or are we going to just be a nation of installers and maintainers? That doesn't work, you know. Which, uh, and I and I ask the question: Are we going to be Greece or Germany? Well, if we don't stop it, we're going to be Greece. And you know where you see that show up in my mind? You see that in the dollar stores. You know, mm -hmm. if you go around the not the, the not A counties, but the B and the C counties in the United States, mm -hmm. you know yeah. what's the most prevalent retailer? 
It's a dollar store, Dollar yeah, Tree, Dollar, dollar General. Mm-hmm. It, it, what, what, and I know exactly what's going on there. They've driven, you know, the former middle class or the mm-hmm. lower middle class wage earner into virtual poverty. So, yes. so, so they don't even have the money to go to Walmart anymore or Kmart, you know, for their cheap goods and, and their and, and their household goods and their appliances and foodstuffs. So they're like basically. Um, shut out of like a market that's already downscale to some degree and now into a really ugly shopping experience. Mm. And I find that it's, it's, it's really astounding. And we just, you know, okay, that's now, you know, the new, the new norm. Everybody's going to go to dollar stores or dollar tree. Yeah. And, and the, the people who are saying, Oh, we want these cheap solar panels. I call that the low price, low wage economy. Yeah. And it doesn't work because uh, if you want to see how it turns out, then go to places. I, I made a talk in September in Mansfield, Ohio, and next to my hotel was the dollar store. And you, it's just another down-in-the-mouth, formerly robust manufacturing center uh, that, that got wiped out by these policies because we'd rather install cheap stuff we bought somewhere else. Uh, and the, you know, first you have the people who lost their $30-an-hour jobs yeah. And now they're paying; they're being paid fifteen an hour to work in an Amazon warehouse. Yeah. But then you also have this aggregate effect where how that depresses everybody's wages, yes. or at least eighty percent, ninety percent of us. Yeah. And and so then you end up in a town where people are shopping at the dollar store. Yeah, who are the geniuses that wrote that? Or the genius that wrote that book, "The High Cost of Low Price"? It was like twenty years ago. We wrote that. Who do you remember? You know that book? Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, and I'm thinking it was somebody at the Economic Policy Institute. I think uh, Robert Scott, maybe. Oh, yeah. we could look. We'll look it up later. But somebody yeah. wrote that. Oh, it was at least 20 years ago. The high cost, and they made a documentary out of that, if I'm not mistaken. So it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't like people didn't really know that you know that we were heading heading in this direction. But I guess the forces of the, the 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 retail and the industrial class was just that powerful that they were willing to basically sacrifice the entire working class of America on the altar of Chinese profits. Yes. Well, some of them did have some crazy ideas. So one (laughs) of them that they had was that, uh, well, you know, we Americans will let those uh, those foreigners do all those uh, low skill manufacturing jobs. And I used to listen to Garrison Keillor on Saturday evenings talking about Lake Wobegon, where all the children were above average. Yeah. And so, you know, they were positing that all Americans are above average when, you know, I'm sorry, but the uh, IQ curve is a bell curve and half of Americans are below average <laughs> and they need those jobs. You know, we're not all you, you have a bunch of five percenters, I call them, these people with IQs of 135 who think the rest of America is like them. And it, it's just so immoral for them to voice that, cra- you know, that kind of a crazy idea on people. Or, or they said, we're going to have a post-industrial economy. Yeah. Uh, if, if you want to know what that looks like, you can look at Grenada, where you try to, ha- you know, have a whole economy that's that's uh, based on uh, tourism and, and education and uh you know, you can't you can't have a nation of 300 million people uh, with, that doesn't make things. You know, it's so true. I, I also think there was a naivete in the part of like the, the left and the Democrats and the intellectuals that somehow this was actually going to liberate people. You know, the surface economy yes. was growing. OK, I mean, we, we, we know that 80 um, percent of all Americans at the turn of the 20th century were engaged in agriculture. 
And now we know that number is under 2%. So, so it's clearly jobs change and, and industry yeah. and, and the nature of work changes. So I, and the service economy has been growing relative to the manufacturing economy for quite a long time in America, probably since the 70s, mm -hmm. where you know, reservation agents, Hertz counter people, uh, massage therapists, what have you, or you know, therapists are all, you know, growing in, 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 in um, medical workers, you know, are all growing in, 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 in in numbers in the, the manufacturing workers were declining. I really think that there was a, a, a sweet na naivete that, yes, what you said, they're going to do all the work for us and everybody's going to be a physical therapist or, you know, work as a Hertz reservationist or maybe a call center or, you know, some other, so more noble, a teacher, more ennobling occupation. We've, we've freed from the drudgery. They'd, in a sense, be our robots. I mean, I really believe that the, the left really thought that that was the case. Yeah, and you know, there's two sources of that. One is just innovation and you know increases in productivity. So even if we never bought anything from anybody outside the United States, our percentage of of uh, employment in manufacturing would be going down the way it did it for the same reasons it did in agriculture as it yeah. as it mechanized. And that's you know that's one thing, but to be just sending the manufacturing to another country. Uh, so that we can, all of us back here can can do those service jobs. Um, it just doesn't work. And if if we want evidence of that, look at a town where the factory closes. And why is it that all those service people can't just support each other? You know, no, there's no base. But yeah, there's no base, and the um, the the manufacturing jobs are uh, unless you're someplace like where Microsoft is, you know, where, where it's a tech economy, but, yeah. you know, on average, you've got to be making things. And the, th those wages are the wages that are driving the wages for the waitresses and the hairdressers and the teachers and the insurance salesmen. Yeah, that's very true. Okay. So when we look at those towns, uh, when the, when the factory is gone, those service occupations aren't capable of supporting each other. No. Well, as many, many economists will point out, manufacturing is only, shall we say, the gateway to engineering and technical mm -hmm. supervision and innovation. You know, if you don't have a manufacturing base, you don't need engineers to fix the machinery. You don't need technicians to service uh, to the machinery, to invent right. new machinery, to sell new machinery, to design new machinery. All of that is very highly skilled and very high wage jobs. But if, not, if the manufacturing base isn't going to consume that chain upwards, then the chain itself disappears, which is even worse than the manufacturing base because all that innovation goes abroad and all the engineers go abroad, uh, you know, for, to make machine tools and, and, uh, and other capital intensive objects beyond manufacturing. Sure. And then uh, a couple of other things come to mind. One that, you know, people might not be thinking about when they're thinking about manufacturing, but take, take pharmaceutical uh, production. Uh, research, development, production. There's a, a wonderful book by Rosemary Gibson called China RX about how China's making all of our, uh, yep. all of the active ingredients for our drugs now. And there's this just tragic uh, chapter she has about a town in Connecticut where uh, Pfizer or some big drug company just closed up shop and moved it all to China. So you it's, can be an American. It was in London, Connecticut. 
I know I know the factory, I know the office park, I know exactly where it is, and the town gave them like a 10-year tax abatement, and they built a gorgeous, beautiful campus in New London, and as soon as that tax abatement was gone, they were the hell out of there. So, yeah, yeah that is for sure. Um, so this is the folly of all of this, because, you know, you were talking about those engineering jobs. Well, what about what about these pharmaceutical research jobs? You know, you've spent 15 years and you've got your PhD and now you're, you know, you're just out of luck because they, they went to China. That's the goal. I live in a, in a congressional district and, and the congresswoman says we have farms and pharma. And you can imagine when those those pharma jobs get sent offshore yep. or the back office jobs get sent to India. And that's yep. the other thing. You know, yeah. you can have a whole technology department. So we're not just sending away our manufacturing jobs. We're sending away our engineering jobs, that's our research jobs, our, our technology jobs. And, you know, as we say it, I'm just astounded that we've pursued these policies. James, tell us one more time about your book, and then we're going to wrap up. Well, you know, I had this uh, light bulb moment that led me to, to look into all of this and wouldn't let go of me. And so I, do, I, did, I took the time to find out why did this happen and then count up how much damage it caused and then how morally wrong that was to do that. But then I have this happy last chapter about how the American consumer, the citizen consumer, can solve this problem with with our dollars in our pockets it's called what if things were made in america again audience i have reviewed this book for worth.com and you could read a review of it jonathan russo worth.com and it's really a profound book it's really smart and the facts speak for themselves james we're going to wrap up now thank you listeners listeners thanks again for tuning into out of the box with jonathan russo your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at OOTB with Russo at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, OOTB with Russo. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.